Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. We've got a hell of a guest this week. He is indeed a human performer, Alex Honnold. We're going to get to Alex in half a second, one of the best rock climbers in the world. Uh, but first, a reminder that you can get 15% off a Whoop membership if you use the code Will Ahmed. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. Whoop membership includes hardware and software and analytics. It's designed to continuously monitor and help you understand your body uh, with really an eye towards improving performance and improving your health. All right, Alex Honnold. This man is fascinating, I got to tell you. So Alex, one of the greatest rock climbers on the planet, you may recognize the name from, of course, Free Solo, the Oscar award-winning National Geographic documentary. If you haven't seen that, that's a must-watch, in which Alex climbs 3,000-foot El Cap without a rope, completely scales El Cap without a rope. I mean, it's such a death-defying accomplishment, it's really hard to comprehend. But I think that's what's so interesting about this conversation, what's so interesting about Alex. Few athletes in the world really have reached the level of mastery in their field the way Alex has. And he openly talks on the podcast about the fact that he doesn't consider himself one of the most talented rock climbers. Uh, but what he's really learned and, and what I took from the podcast is how to overcome fear. The common perception of Alex, if you do a lot of research on him like I did, is that he's sort of uh, a genetic freak of sorts, that he's just genetically disposed to not feeling fear the way you and I feel fear. But when we got into it, it turns out Alex was afraid of public speaking. Uh, he's had other fears in his life that you or I may find less intimidating. And yet in this particular area of his life, rock climbing, he has achieved mastery. And he's in particular learned how to control fear under the circumstances of rock climbing. And I think the takeaway for me and for anyone listening is if he can reach that level of mastery in rock climbing, what can we do in our lives to overcome fear in all other walks of life? There's a great theme that we hit on, which is the difference between high risk and high consequence. We discuss why playing to your strengths is the key to accomplishing great things. A big theme for Alex was playing to his strengths and focusing less on his weaknesses. Visualization, we go deep on visualization. He focuses not just on the positive, but the negative, which I found pretty fascinating. I mean, he has deeply visualized what it would feel like to fall from El Cap. I mean, that's a pretty fascinating visualization strategy to, to, to go that deep on death. Uh, which I think is in part what's given him this mastery. And uh, and lastly, why Alex doesn't like the public perception that he's a risk taker. And from my point of view, Alex is not a risk taker, which is an insane thing to say about someone who has climbed 3,000 feet without a rope. So without further ado, here's Alex. It's an amazing podcast, and I really enjoyed it. Alex, welcome to the Whoop Podcast. Oh, th thanks for having me. My pleasure. So... When did you first start rock climbing? Oh, I started climbing when I was 10, uh, though I, I sort of climbed on things my whole life, but I was introduced to a climbing gym for the first time when I was 10 and then uh, have been climbing ever since. And what was the moment when you first did a solo climb? You've now done over a thousand, right? Well, it depends how you count. I've done probably 
maybe 40 things that are sort of cutting edge that I'm proud of, you know, things that maybe hadn't been done before. Um, but if you count just the number of things that I've sold, it's well into the thousands. I mean, it'd, it'd be hard to count. Yeah. What was the moment for you though, where you were like, okay, I'm going to do this without ropes. And if I fall, the consequences are going to be a lot higher. Yeah. It wasn't exactly a moment. It was a, you know, it's sort of a spectrum. Like, Cause even when I was a teenager climbing in the gym, I, I was working at the climbing gym as well. And so after hours, I would occasionally solo some of the routes. And so, you know, the gym was only 35 feet tall or something. And, you know, it's a padded floor. And so it's not exactly the high stakes free soloing that you think of, but it's still sort of dabbling in, in soloing. And then eventually, you know, I started soloing outdoors a little bit. So basically as a teenager and then sort of 19, 20 year old, I started soloing a little bit, you know, from time to time. And for you, it was mostly an independent pursuit, right? Like you weren't, you weren't hanging out with a bunch of people going rock, you know, going climbing. You were, you were doing a lot of this yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And and part of that's just because I was in suburban Sacramento. There just wasn't a huge climbing community. And especially back then, which is sort of mid nineties, uh, climbing as a whole was just a much smaller pursuit in the U.S. So, you know, much smaller community, fewer people to, to gather with, you know. Yeah, so it was relatively solitary at the time. And you drop out of college, or as, as you put it uh, on, one, on one interview I heard, you know, you took a leave of absence and then you took a leave of absence and you never kind of stopped taking a leave of absence. Yeah, I've taken a very long leave of absence from uh, UC Berkeley. <laughs> Yeah. And it, and it was just because you were so in love with rock climbing. I mean, you were you were a young person. You said, "This is really all I want to be doing right now." Yeah, that was definitely part of it, and part of it was just that I didn't have a particular passion for what I was studying at university, and I felt like it was kind of a waste to spend my parents' money basically on something that I didn't that I didn't love love doing. And so, um, you know, at the time, I thought I was just taking a year off to go climb, and you know, now it's been fifteen years or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, know, you know, I might finish my education at some point though. It's it, it's a beautiful story. You, you sort of innocently drop out of college. You you ultimately end up living out of your your van, right? And you're mostly traveling to the best sites and and climbing. I mean, is that a f- fair way to categorize your your early twenties? Oh, yeah, I mean that's not a bad way to characterize my current life too. <laughs> you know, basically <laughs> basically traveling to to climb in the best places that I can. So. You free solo Half Dome in 2008, and I've listened to you talk about this. You reflect on it. I mean, you were the first person to do it, if I understand correctly, but you reflect on it as being a failure. Like, talk a little bit about that and kind of what you learned about your psyche during it. Yeah, though I didn't necessarily learn that about my psyche as I did it. You know, it's something that you sort of realize, uh, you know, years later over time. Yeah, but so... Uh, I had an experience free soloing Half Dome. I mean, it's almost, there's a lot to get into, but basically I didn't really prepare for the the free solo of Half Dome at all because it was the biggest and most difficult thing I'd done up to that point. And I basically didn't know how to prepare for it. It was like too big a scope, too big a scale. And so I sort of intentionally went up there with minimal preparation, thinking that I was preserving the adventure of it. You know, I was like, oh, it'll just be more of an experience this way. But as it turned out, it was kind of too much of an experience that way. And it turned out being really scary. And uh, I made a few decisions as I free sold the route. I sort of improvised a few things and it turned out to be a little more harrowing than I expected. And so when I finished the climb, I definitely felt like I'd sort of gotten away with something, which wasn't exactly the experience that I was hoping for in a, in a free solo. You know, obviously you go up there hoping to feel confident and smooth and like feel great on the rock. 
you know, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. And in the case of Half Dome, I was like, oh, I definitely didn't feel great. You know, I felt like I felt very afraid and in some key places and basically sort of like barely got away with it. There were a couple key moments on that uh, on that climb where you did not feel comfortable and you weren't entirely <laughs> sure what the right next move was, which we'll get to your, your you know, your El Cap experience is really in, in stark contrast to that where you had memorized every single thing about that climb. I can't quite imagine what it's like being in that situation where you realize that you've committed to this thing and there's no going back and you're also not entirely comfortable with the situation. Well, I'm, I'm sure you kind of can't imagine that because I mean, with starting a business, I'm sure you get into plenty of committing situations where you're suddenly like, oh, what have I done? Like, is this going to work? Was this the correct decision? You know, I mean, the stakes are a little lower maybe, but it's like the same, the same feelings, I'm sure, where you're like, oh God, what have I done? Yeah. Well, you, you described the difference between risk and consequence, which seems like it applies here as you're comparing mm. it to my life of building a business. <laughs> What, what does that mean to you, risk and consequence? What's the difference? Yeah, so risk I define as the likelihood of something actually, you know, something going wrong and then consequence being the severity if something does go wrong. So for example, with, with free soloing, it's really hard for an observer to tell what the risk is because it's hard for someone, you know, say watching a video of me climbing to know how likely I am to fall off. But it's very obvious what the consequences are because pretty much anywhere if I fall off, I'm going to die. And so I think a lot of people conflate that because they look at a video of me free soloing and they think, oh, that's super risky. And you're kind of like, well, you can't judge from the video how likely I am to fail. You just know that if I do fail, I'm going to die for sure. And so, I mean, in some ways, the appeal of free soloing to me is to be in a high consequence situation, but to make it feel super low risk, you know, to feel totally safe doing something that has very high consequences. I love that. I mean, you're it's why I believe you're self-critical of your experience with Half Dome because you realized during it that it was it was both risky and of and high consequence, right? <laughs> yeah, which which is definitely the worst case scenario, you know. Well, I mean, not worst case because I would say Half Dome was was sort of moderate risk. You know, I, I was taking some chances, but it wasn't like crazy. I wasn't jumping to holds, and you know, I wasn't about to die. But I felt like I was putting putting things on the line. And, and that's a completely subjective sort of internal experience that, that you can't really judge by, by viewing or even hearing about, you know, I mean, that's something that really only I can judge, like how close to the edge I am. And yeah. on something like Half Dome, I was like, well, I was definitely closer than I wanted to be. And that's, that's close enough for me. Well, the, there is an analogy to that in, in other walks of life where someone listening to you or like in the, in the, the analogy of building a business, like a leader may say something with a lot of conviction in the moment but in the back of his mind he's thinking like okay this could go either way but we need to pick a path and and i imagine that if i were even a more sophisticated climber which i'm not at all but like i were watching you in that moment on half dome i don't know that i would even be able to tell that it was more risky otherwise right no pro probably the, the not the risk is almost your the risk was your internal perception of the of the moment is what made it risky right yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's only really on the inside where you know whether or not you think your foot might slip or, you know, if the foothold's too bad. Anybody watching just sees it as like, this is all crazy rock climbing. It all looks totally insane. Yeah, well, what I what I find really fascinating about your perception of mastery is it's not, it's not solely based on the outcome. Like, you climbed the thing. 
um, you got to the top of the mountain. It's also based on the entire process of, of getting there. And that process includes the way that you felt internally, it includes the way your mind was perceiving the entire experience. And that's that's pretty cool, man. That's really cool. Yeah, I've never totally thought of it that way, but I mean, that is it. And And the thing about that is that, you know, just achieving your goal, like doing the thing that you're trying to do, you're always left with the feeling afterward of, of like, what's the next bigger thing? Like, what's the other thing that you're working on? You know, there's always some other difficult challenge to do. So like just doing the thing in a lot of ways, isn't really enough. It's like how you feel doing the thing and how you feel building up to the thing. You know, it's like basically the way you lead your life on the way to doing the thing that kind of matters. But. Yeah. So if you think about your experience with, with half dome and you then say, say to yourself, okay, well, here's El Cap and this would be like the greatest free solo ever and no one's done it. Describe that, that dream because it was like a decade long dream from 2000, as I understand it, 2008 to 2017 when you actually did the climb. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, just working through it in your mind. Uh, yeah, no, I think it was 2009 uh, when I 2009. sort of decided that I was, so I, I free solo at Half Dome in 2008 and I remember a specific right. moment on a climbing expedition in 2009 where I was kind of by myself thinking about, you know, goals for the season. I was like, all right, soloing all cap is like the next obvious thing. And, uh, you know, and so basically from 2009 onward, it was on the list each year is like, oh, this is something I should do. But the reality was that each year when I drove in Yosemite, I just look at the wall and, and be completely overwhelmed. You know, like there is no way that I can do that this year. And so by 2014, 15, you know, I'd now been sort of sitting on with this huge goal on the back burner for many years without really getting that much closer to doing it. And sort of in 2015, I realized that it was never just going to happen by itself. You know, I was, I was never just going to walk into Yosemite and, and think, Oh, it looks easy this year. You know, like this year it'll be chill. I was like, it's just never going to be chill. It's like, if I want to do this, I'm going to have to put specific effort into, into this goal and actually work toward it. And I think sort of the magnitude of the goal had always sort of prevented me from, from explicitly working on it. Cause it just seemed too daunting, like too big, too crazy, like too impossible. But then I was like, you know, I don't know. You just I, like, I hate having something undone on the back of my to-do list for, for, you know, half a decade. You're like, Oh man, I like I, each year I'm failing on this thing I want to do and I'm not getting any closer to it. At some point I should probably actually put the effort in and, and, and start working on it. Do you remember what that switch was where you went from just realizing that it was on your to-do list and it wasn't going away to you overcoming that, that I don't want to call it a fear, but like that sort of first step of starting it. Yeah, there, there are a couple moments that I remember that are all like sort of, you know, inside baseball-y. I don't know if you, if you yeah, want to. Yeah, let's do it. Let's okay. do it. Um, I mean, so so one in particular was uh, free. I free climbed El Cap, meaning climbed it with a rope and a partner, but, uh, but you know, with hands and feet. Like, so uh, I freed El Cap with a friend of mine via this new route that he had just worked on. And I think this was in the summer of 2015 or maybe it was 2014, but um but I had a very specific moment where it was the first time I climbed El Cap and actually thought you're like, you know, this is actually like kind of reasonable. Um, the route that we climbed together shared the first thousand feet of free rider, which is the route that I ultimately soloed. Yeah. And so it was the first time that I climbed that first thousand feet of the wall with a rope and thought, you know, I could imagine doing this without a rope. And so that was like a real moment where I was like, okay, like this could be possible. Like I could start working on this in a way. 
And, and that had to do with a lot of different factors. Part of that was because we did it in, in June, it was like warm and pleasant and it was like really nice conditions physically. So like the climbing felt nice. Um, you know, cause sometimes when you climb that stuff in like late fall or, uh, or early winter, it's like, uh, your fingers and toes are numb and it all feels a little more extreme. And so it's harder to visualize the whole wall as like a friendly, comfortable experience when, when you're physically on edge a little bit. So like that was one small experience where I basically, I climbed it with a friend and I was like, you know, this could be possible. But then I also had a couple conversations with people where like one of them, it's like, so this is really like niche climbing. But the thing is I'd spent years thinking that if I was a stronger climber, like if I climbed harder grades, I would be able to look at El Cap and it would just seem easier to me. And so I'd always sort of built up this grade of 14 D, which is kind of like elite level, like very high performance rock climbing. I'd always kind of built that up as like, if you were a 14 D climber, then El Cap would be easy for you. And I kind of had this realization uh, and, and after years of trying, I still wasn't a 514. I was still wasn't a 14D climber. It's still basically just too hard. It's like, that's like cutting and just edge. Like, for the non-climbers, like how many people in the world are even a 14D? Like that, that's like a very unique level, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Nowadays, uh, it's starting to be more, you know, like there might be a hundred people in the world that have climbed that grade or something at, at this point. But okay. to put it in context though, you know, like 10 or 15 years ago, there were like one or two people in the world that had, had climbed at that grade. It's basically getting into like super elite, very high end climbing. And, and, and also just to be clear, like, I'm not like the physically best climber in the world, never have been. I'm not like physically gifted in that way. And so I love that about your story because it it shows that you've become like world-class at the whole mental side of this, which I'm so fascinated by, but you're, you're touching on an interesting theme, which I feel like is you had built up this boundary of 14 D that mm. you just all of a sudden realized, well, I actually, maybe I don't need to be a 14 D to still do this. Right. Well, yeah. So, so I think the, the, the real lesson from this was that I realized that if, you know, like in general to improve at climbing, it's all about focusing on your weaknesses. And this is kind of true in life. Like if you want to get better at things, focus on the things that you're bad at. But then I kind of had this realization where it occurred to me that if you want to do your absolute best at something, focus on your strengths, you know, like hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Like if you want to improve, focus on your weakness, but if you want to do something incredible, focus on what you're best at. And I was like, the thing that I'm best at is climbing five twelve, which is like a relatively more moderate grade all day long without getting tired. And I'm kind of like, and that's what you need to be able to free solo out cap. And at a certain point I was like, I should just quit stressing trying to be a climber that I'm not and focus on the type of climber that I am and just push that all the way to the limit, you know? And so basically, you know, I accepted that, that El Cap was never going to look easy and I was never going to be this incredibly strong climber, but the type of climber that I was is capable of freestyling El Cap. You know, it's like, I may as well just focus on my strengths, double down on what I'm good at and just do this thing that I'm you know, passionate about and quit worrying about trying to become something that I'm not. It's so fascinating. And your point about uh, focusing on your strengths is one of the, I think it's one of the more interesting business lessons too that I've come across. There's this perception in growing a business or even managing a team that like you want to, you want to constantly be giving people feedback on their weaknesses and you need to improve your weaknesses. And it's actually, I think, really overrated advice. You, you really want to focus on people's strengths and amplify the hell out of them yeah. and then fill in the gaps um, on people's weaknesses with other team members. Mm-hmm. And that, at least to me, building whoop, that's been incredibly valuable, both for me personally, but also I think for the broader 
organization. I love the way you put that, uh, of focusing on your strengths. Um, and obviously your strengths are, are quite significant. Well, but, but actually though, my strengths are really, really niche in a way, like in the broader field of climbing, the things that I'm good at climbing are just really narrow in a way, but by really focusing on them and, and sort of exploiting those strengths to the max, you know, I've been able to do some things that I'm, that I'm pretty proud of, but you know, I really had to, to like double down on this like narrow slice of climbing. Cause I'm like, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not gifted in, in certain aspects of climbing. And, you know, and I beat my head against those like my entire life, you know, like that's what I focus on. That's what I train for. And that's what helps me improve as a climber, but they are natural gifts, you know, and you're kind of like, oh, sometimes you just have to play to your strengths though. One of the things that I find so fascinating about your, um, your free solo of El Cap is that there wasn't really a playbook for it. You know, you didn't really have a coach for this is how we're going to do this. And you put you in a, in a lot of ways became your own coach and it's why you must live such an intentional life. You know, if, um, I mean, the dude who broke, broke the four minute mile for the first time, like he had a running coach, he had a whole team probably that was figuring out how he's going to break a four minute mile. Whereas you were really figuring this out for yourself. I mean, I'm sure you had a support network, but you had to figure out what were the, what, what about your strengths? Did you need to amplify? What did you need to visualize to get really, And Yeah, I know. Th- and that's a really interesting point because, uh, you know, I did have a support network. Like I have a lot of expertise in climbing around me because most of my friends are professional climbers and everybody's, you know, well-versed in training and all that. But in a way that was all actually sort of discouraging me from the type of training that I felt like I needed for LCAP because most other climbers are training to climb harder grades. Like I was just describing, trying to climb 515 or like hard numbers. And, and that kind of thing just won't help you climb LCAP. So like in a way I was training for like the ultra marathon of, of climbing. And most people are training for, you know, like mile runs or like hundred meter sprints. You know I mean? It's like totally different sports, like physiological different totally, events. Totally, totally. And, and so all my friends are training for one thing. I'm training for a totally separate thing. And they're all telling me that I'm doing it wrong and that I'm sucking. And I'm kind of like, yeah, but I think I'm training for a different thing. You know, it's like, I don't know. It was interesting because I, I remember the the sort of four months leading up to to the actual successful free solo level cap, like the leading up to that spring in Yosemite. And I remember a couple of my friends telling me that I was doing it wrong, basically, that I was doing too much volume, that I was too weak and that, you know, I was like wearing myself out unnecessarily. And I was like, training in the wrong way but i was like ah, i'm pretty sure that i'm doing what i need to free solo i'll cap you know but it's like nobody's ever worked on that so it's, like you said there's not much of a playbook for it you know there's no easy way to, to to learn and where did that confidence come from like what what made you what made you sure that you were training the right way was it the way you were feeling when you were when you were going up uh el cap was it just your sort of general gut yeah. I mean, part of it is, well, and to be clear, I wasn't totally confident, you know, in classic form, you're like, I think I'm doing it right. I hope I'm doing it right, but right. like, we'll see, you know, like who knows. Yeah. But, wow. Um, but no, part of it is because I've been a pretty serious journaler my entire life for uh, climbing journals, like keeping track of routes that I'm climbing. And then also I, I always have two different journals going basically like a training and life journal. That's kind of like diet, how I feel like random stuff like that. And then not like how I feel, you know, emotional, but just like notes of, you know, I ate this much, felt sure. good, slept this yeah. much. Yeah. I mean, basically all the stuff that you, that I can keep in a whoop now, honestly, which is, <laughs> which is kind of classic. That's cool. But, um, and actually the whole concept of strain and all that, I mean, that's basically what my, my training journal has always been. Oh, and, that's then my, cool. and then my climbing journal is just a very, 
uh, sort of clinical description of what routes I climb, how long they take, you know, times on approaches, times on ascents, things like that. Um, just like the nitty gritty of, of what I've climbed. But so I have all my data and climbing going back to 2006, basically. And so I do have a decent sense of when I've had very good seasons in Yosemite, what type of climbing I've been doing ahead of time, how I prepared in different ways, you know, how I've responded to dietary changes and training changes and a sense of what kind of volume of training I can handle. Like before free soloing all cap, I was doing like 40 hours of exercise a week, which is like at the very highest end of, of what I can handle. And really what any athlete handles, I think is like kind of too much in some ways. Um, yeah, that's, that's but, on par with, I mean, triathletes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 40 no, hours I mean, a week. I mean, that's, it's like, that's really significant. It's, yeah. it's like almost too much more. for sure. The thing is most people, when they train to climb El Cap, you know, El Cap is 3000 feet tall. So they're training for a 3000 foot climb, which might be comparable to training for a marathon, let's say. But I knew that in order to free solo El Cap, I wasn't just going to climb it once. I was going to climb El Cap sort of day in and day out all season long as I rehearsed movements and as I memorized, you know, sequences and practiced and all that. And so I wasn't training to do a marathon. I was training to do a marathon four times a week for the entire season. You know what I mean? And so it's like a completely different volume of, of climbing training. And, and that's why my friends were all making fun of me for like doing too much volume. And I'm kind of like, well, how else do you prepare for, you know, running four marathons a week, if not by doing a tremendous amount of volume? Because what you were essentially doing was memorizing the exact route that you were going to take when you free soloed it, right? You wanted to know that you knew every move and you were going to visualize everything about this experience before it even happened. Yeah, basically. I mean, and the first part of the season was actually finding all the moves because I, I wound up doing some little yeah, variations right. to avoid certain sections. And then, and then once I sort of found a good path and felt confident with it, then to actually memorize it and execute it well. I mean, it's just a lot. I mean, it was the full opposite end of the spectrum from the half dome experience. You know, I just felt like El Cap was hard enough that I should have everything perfect. So there'd be less uncertainty involved. In a way, it was almost like you were too good of a climber relative to the free solo of half dome you know because you you let yourself be comfortable going into it almost with a little bit of uh, like a lack of preparation right whereas el cap you viewed as such an intimidating you know foe if you will that you knew you had to be absolutely dialed yeah part of it is is that and i mean the reality is that i probably could have free soloed El Cap the year before, like in the film, there's a fail attempt where I go partway up and decide to stop. You know, if someone had a gun to my head and I'd been forced to continue, I, I almost certainly would have successfully free soloed El Cap that day, but I would have been totally gripped and, you know, it wouldn't have been a good experience for me. It would have, it, you, again, it wouldn't have made you feel like mastery. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I would have been like, oh my God, I barely got away with something. And and that would just suck, you know, because because free selling El Cap is probably the thing that I'll be most proud of in climbing my whole life, I, I assume, just because it's like such a monumental cliff for for climbers. And, and, you know, I wanted to have a good experience. Like, I don't want to think about El Cap and be slightly embarrassed and be like, I hope nobody saw that because it was like sort of a, a botch, you know, like it's, it's nice to be able to think yeah. about it and be, and be proud of the whole experience, you know. So So about two years out from doing it, you committed to it. You started to tell close friends, Hey, I'm going to do this. Um, that's around when the documentary, you know, was conceived right with Jimmy and Chai. Mm -hmm. Um, and their first reactions were probably 
to be a little nervous about it, I would imagine, and also be a little nervous potentially filming it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've heard both of them speak about this a bit throughout the Free Solo film tour and all that, but yeah, it, it's it's funny because I think when I told the the two film directors, you know, Jimmy Chan and Chai Bassarelli, Chai is a non-climber, and so she heard it, it was like, oh, that's great. I mean, that'll be great for the film. You know, it's a beautiful objective. Like, that's perfect. Jimmy heard it. And she's and, and she's the non-climber of the two, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, and so, I think that's important context. Yeah, and so Jimmy, who's a you know veteran big wall climber, heard me say that and felt sick to his stomach and was like, oh no, like that's going right, to be... Right, right, because he knew yeah. what to do. Yeah and, yeah, and he knew that he would be the one hanging on the side of the cliff filming it and he was like, oh my God, I feel sick even thinking about it. Like that's that sounds like a bit much, you know? And so, uh, yeah, it was kind of funny because... Yeah, the non-climber, you know, Chai is like, oh, that sounds great. Let's film it, you know, and, Chai, and Jimmy's like, oh, no, <laughs> like, let's not. And uh, it was it was interesting listening to them talk a little about making the movie because they said that they had to lay out these ground rules for how to do it so that they felt like it was still going to be true to your experience. And one of the ground rules was so they could never ask you if you were going to do it. And so I'm curious how, like, what was the feedback loop in your, in your mind of what, what is going to be the right day to do this? Because it wasn't like you picked a day on the calendar. You were assessing almost in real time what the day is going to be, right? Yeah. I mean, they had to deal with a tremendous amount of uncertainty because, you know, they're making a film without knowing if I'm ever even going to be able to do the objective of the film. So right there, it's like, who knows if this will ever happen? Yeah. And then there's always the chance that I try and fail, which is like worst case scenario. Then you have this total disaster film and that would be very unfortunate. And dark film. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a dark film. And like, what do you even do with all the footage then? It's like, do you just, I don't know. You just pretend it never happened. You know, you just erase all the footage. You're like (laughs) film, what film? You know, you're like, Oh no. But, but obviously, you know, it was produced by national geographic. So like it's being funded by, by the Nat Geo documentary branch. It's like, you know, there is money being spent on it and like they're obligated to produce some kind of film and you're sort of like, oh, geez. But I think they actually did a really good job of sheltering me from that pressure. They just let me do my thing. You know, obviously it's always a bit of a junk show when you're filming because, you know, there are people physically standing by you with cameras and holding a boom mic and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there it, it does change the experience a little bit to have people filming, but they definitely did a really good job of minimizing that impact as much as possible. So I felt like I was still having the climbing experience that that I wanted. And ultimately on the day of when I free sold it all cap, it was exactly the experience that I wanted. It was it was kind of amazing. Now describe the day that you thought you were gonna do it, but decided not to. What what happened in the process where you were like, not today? There were, there were a handful of things, actually. Something I mentioned uh, a minute ago was that in the late fall, sort of early winter in Yosemite, it's just much colder and the, you know, the daylight hours are, are different, days are shorter. So on the, my failed attempt, I was starting in the dark. It was quite cold on the ground, uh, which means your fingers and toes are numb. So when you're sort of interfacing with the rock, like how you touch and feel the rock, you have much less sensitivity. So it makes it all a little bit more scary because you're not sure that you're, you know, attached to the rock well. <laughs> And then uh, I sprained my ankle kind of severely before that. And so my foot was still swollen. My shoe felt too tight. I couldn't feel one foot. And then basically I just got to a specific move where you have to trust your life to a single foothold with no wow. handholds to, to sort of back you up. And I couldn't feel the toes. And I was like, I just instantly was like, I'm not into this. Like, I don't want to do this. And so I kind of gave up. So I, right there, I started grabbing bolts, like the, the hardware that's like attached to the mountain and sort of started cheating there. 
And so, um, which makes it feel a lot less serious because you're suddenly like, you know, grabbing onto stuff that you wouldn't normally be able to use. Um, but it wasn't like a thought out decision. You know, I just got to a certain point was like, I'm not doing this and then started cheating and basically quit, you know? The bigger version is that I just hadn't really prepared for it enough yet, you know, because I'd injured my ankle. I just like hadn't spent enough days. Yeah. I didn't know the moves well enough. Like when I, when I came back the next season in the spring and worked on it a lot more, uh, I focused on that section like a lot. And by the end I'd done it in my tennis shoes, like with the rope on. And, you know, I'd done it a bunch of different ways that gave me tremendous amount of confidence that I knew that I could trust my feet going across that section of slab. And so you know, when I ultimately did free solo it, I just knew that it would be, it would be fine. The preparation level from a visualization standpoint, I mean, talk about that. I was surprised just the degree to which you imagine also the negative, you know, a lot of people, when they think about a visualization exercise, they're just visualizing the success. They're visualizing it going perfectly. And you actually really, it seems like take on all the negative, all the, all the possibilities of, the, of how it can go wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the whole point of visualization. I mean, to me, the point of visual visualization is to prepare you for any eventualities, like any possibility that could happen while climbing. I mean, basically the point is to not be caught by surprise by anything. And so, you know, you don't want to get into a position climbing and suddenly have the thought for the first time, like, what if I fall? You know what I mean? Like, obviously right. you want to have thought that through in its entirety. You want to already know that, you know, if your foot slips here, you're going to cartwheel down the wall. You're going to bounce down the wall. You're going to basically explode on impact on the ground. I mean, it's all terrible things to think about and it's scary to think about, but it's important to think about those things ahead of time so that you don't suddenly come up with them for the first time while you're in that position, you know? And I mean, I think that if you focus only on positive visualization, that's actually kind of dangerous because in a way that's like luring you into something that, that could be beyond you. Like if anything, especially with- That's an interesting way of putting it. Like, yeah, you, you probably should, especially in what you're doing, you should not just have a positive visualization because that might encourage you to do something that is beyond your means and, and leads to a disaster. I mean, even, even in business, don't you think? I mean, if you only focus on the, the best possible outcome, you're like, yeah, that's great. And that can inspire you to take on big challenges, but it doesn't prepare you for, for anything else. You know, <laughs> like what, what happens when life gets in the way? That's like the... Uh... Well, I guess if I were to really dissect my own visualization, I do see things going wrong, but I always picture overcoming them. Sorry, I was just thinking about it. I mean, it's it's very interesting to to sort of think about it through that lens. I, I think that you're probably more certain in what you do than what I'm what I do, you know, in a way. Like listening to you describe just how knowing you know how much you knew exactly what to do at every stage is really inspiring. Well, uh, part part of that's because climbing has fundamentally fewer variables. You know, yeah, there is that, an that's objective what I mean. nature to rock. Yeah. That's what I mean. And, and so I wonder if that's an interesting difference between climbing and business. Like you you only ever really know like 70% or 80%, mm. you know, that it's the right thing. And so part of it is, is really believing that it's the right thing while knowing what could happen with the 20 or 30, but like committing that this is what it looks like when it works out. And in a way, you know, it's interesting. I think in business, it's not like poker where you're dealt cards and you're stuck with those cards. I think a level of commitment to something can actually change your cards. 
if you follow mm. what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like, like you can bluff, but actually in turn, it gives you better cards. There's a slight difference, if you know what I mean. Does that make sense? Yeah, the, the fundamentally business relies on so many more subjective measures because it's, it's human-based. You know, you just never totally know what other people are going to do, how they feel about things. Like, I mean, the beauty of climbing is that it's totally objective. Like, the rock doesn't change. The, you know, the root up the rock never changes. Like, it's just so few variables to, to, to have to factor in. I don't know. I mean, I just think the business world is so much more of a junk show. You know, you're like, well, who knows what other people are going to do and how they feel about it. And like, if that's going to impact their decisions and how that changes my decision, you know, with climbing, you're just like, the rock is always the same. So in theory, you can work on it as much as you need until it feels possible. Which is what you did with, with El Cap and you visualized every scenario. You, I mean, it sounds like you even visualized your shoe tearing or it raining yeah. or all that totally. stuff, right? Totally. I mean, and, just because that way, if any of it happens, you're never caught by surprise. You're like, oh yeah, I've done this already, even though you haven't technically done it, but you've played it through in your mind. So nothing is a surprise. You're like, I'm ready for everything. It's amazing. The movie is amazing. Free Solo. Congratulations on, on, on that accomplishment. And of course the movie as well. And I, I love listening to you talk about it because it's, you know, my, my general sense is that the outside world looks at you as someone who's almost got a little bit of a genetic disposition to being able to overcome fear. Like I was reading about, you know, this sort of analysis of your amygdala, right. Which is with the area of your brain that, um, you know, obviously is fight or flight. And this idea that maybe yours is just sort of naturally a little bit suppressed, but in listening to you, I feel like you're, you're so disciplined and so intentional that you've just trained, you've trained yourself to, to control it under a certain circumstance, right? Which is um, a life or death scenario of climbing, but it's like, let me ask you this way. Are there other things in your life that might surprise people that make you fearful? Like that you, you realize that you're, you're, you, you have some level of fear towards like public speaking at some point in your life. Was that something that you feared doing? Yeah. I mean, as a young person, I was horrified of public speaking. Like the idea of speaking in front of class in school was completely out of the question. And actually giving a Ted talk remains one of the scariest things I've probably ever done in my life. Like I was horrified. Okay. Like I was, I was so gripped on stage that I, that I completely skipped one of my closing paragraphs. Like if you watch my Ted talk online, it's fully missing a paragraph that I intended to deliver, but totally lost because my brain turned to mush. Okay. Well, this is a perfect transition because I watched your Ted talk last night yeah, yeah, to prepare yeah. for this. And I was like, yeah. I think he's nervous. Like yeah. I actually think he's <laughs> nervous. And, and, yeah. and it's a, it's a beautiful thing though, man, because it shows that with a, like a, like an insane level of commitment and discipline um, and visualization and practice, like you've been able to overcome this insane thing and overcome like the mindset towards it. And it's not just that you're like, you know, some genetic unique thing. Like you, you do, you do feel fears in, in other aspects of your life, but you've yeah. been so intentional, which I think is so beautiful. Yeah, no, I th that's totally it. It's like with the, with climbing, I've been doing it full time and trying my hardest and pushing and, you know, broadening my comfort zone, like working on every aspect of my climbing for 25 years. And then, you know, and I've learned a lot of things about, you know, managing my fear and, you know, controlling emotion and whatever. But then when I try to apply that to something like a TED talk, you know, giving a TED talk, like I'm not good at memorizing lines. I'm not that great at public speaking. You know, I've had a little bit of practice now, but, but not that much, you know, a few years worth, let's say. And you're sort of like, yeah, I have some experience, 
but not that much. And like, this is hard for me, you know, I'm sort of like, oh, I don't have 25 years of experience and practice in this. And so when I go up on stage and try to deliver this memorized talk in front of, you know, thousands of the most respected people, you know, like people, I don't know, everyone there's so classy. I'm like, oh, geez, you know, like, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of all these people. And I was like, oh, this is, this is pretty intense. It's it pretty hardcore for me. I, I mean, there's such a beauty in that, that you're giving a TED talk about climbing a 3000 foot mountain that, that no one's ever climbed before and how you did it without any ropes or anything. And that experience was almost less nerve wracking to you than the actual experience of just talking about it in front of people later. Yeah. But it's all, it's all what you're good at, you know? Of course. But I, I that's, that's what I take away from this is yeah. like, if you can just build this level of discipline and intentionality in your life around certain aspects, the the mastery that you can have of them is is quite high and independent mm-hmm. from other aspects of your life too, right? No, totally, totally. And that's the the article you were talking about with my amygdala and things like that. You know, depending on how, well, I'm not sure if you were referring to the article or the scene in the film, but basically there was this whole, uh, um, there was a magazine article written about, you know, my amygdala and fear and climbing and all that. And, and I thought the real takeaway from, from that experience with the fMRI and the, the personality test and all that was more that with enough conditioning, you can kind of desensitize yourself to any amount of stimulus, you know, that, because like, I, I remember being scared of soloing when I was young, you know, the first things that I soloed were like really intense for me and, and pretty full on. And, and now those are routes that I would happily do in my tennis shoes, just as like, oh, this is so fun. This is so relaxed. I'm having a great time on the cliff. And you know, clearly 15 years of continuous effort and sort of progress has changed the way those experiences, you know, register in my brain. Now, looking back at it, you know, now taking fMRI, you're like, oh, well, you know, he doesn't activate, doesn't show fear in, in these certain ways. And you're like, well, yeah, with 15 years of conditioning, obviously it doesn't, doesn't stimulate you in the same way anymore. But- yeah. Well, I, I think there's, there's a really interesting lesson to that. And it's also, this is interesting to, to talk now about the fact that you're on Whoop because I'm fascinated by what your data might look like. You know, there's, there's a study recently uh, that just came out. I think it was like end of 2020 that showed that a lack of REM sleep, you know, which is like, you know, when, you, when your, your mind is repairing cognitively, it's obviously a stage of sleep Whoop measures. Like a lack of REM sleep was proven to be linked to a heightened amygdala response. So, you know, if you don't get enough REM sleep, you know, you're someone who could be more panicky or you have a more active fight or flight response. And in reading that study and then also thinking about this interview, I was like, I bet this dude gets a lot of REM sleep. Like, yeah, you strike me as someone who's probably a great sleeper. I, I, I am a great sleeper. Um, but what, uh, what is the ratio between REM and sort of deep sleep and light sleep supposed to be? Because I've actually sort of already noticed... Uh, like I, I seem to get a lot of REM sleep actually, but so I'm curious what it's supposed to be. Okay, that's, that's um, that doesn't surprise me at all yeah, yeah. because again, you have this control over your amygdala, at least under an activity that you do in a large percentage of your life. You have this control of your amygdala that's unusually great, huh. and uh, and I bet it's because you get an insane amount of REM sleep. Do you know yes. how much REM sleep you get a night? Oh, I, I don't know. Like the last time I looked like three and a half hours or something, but what's, what's like, <laughs> so uh, that's, an, that's an, that's an enormous amount of REM oh, sleep, is it? like, like outlier level of REM sleep. Oh, yeah, what's, what's the, uh, what are the numbers so, supposed to be like deep sleep versus REM versus light sleep? Yeah. So for people listening who are like, what are we talking about? Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> your stages consist of awake, light, 
REM and slow wave, right? And REM is when your mind's repairing cognitively. Slow wave is when you produce about 95% of your human growth hormone. Both are wildly important for athletes. In your case, you might REM might be even more important because it sounds like it doesn't take the strength necessarily to get you up the climb. It's often your, your mindset. Generally speaking, if you can have over 25% of the time you spend in bed be a combination of REM and slow wave sleep, you're doing well. My hmm. sense is that you're probably doing 50, 60, 70, maybe even 80% of the time you spend in bed is in REM and slow wave, which is mm -hmm. an outlier level of sleep precision. I'll give you another example. We just published this paper on Justin Thomas. Justin's like one of the best golfers in the world. And he just won the Players' Championship this past weekend. Cool. And he shared his slow wave sleep over the course of the tournament. And sure enough, he was averaging like three, three and a half hours of, uh, excuse me, of REM sleep. He's averaging three, three and a half hours of REM sleep every night of the tournament. So you talk about a guy who was probably prepared to deal with that anxiety of having the lead at the very end of the round and trying to you know close out the tournament. And he responded really well in those high stress moments. So it's just that's, fascinating, that's, man. That uh, that's so cool that you get through that. That, that is, uh, I think that's so interesting because that that's the thing is people like watch a YouTube video of me climbing. And they're like, oh, you must be physically gifted. And I'm like, maybe my gift is that I get great REM sleep, you know, but whoever would have thought of that? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's seriously, so weird. Seriously. <laughs> like, Huh. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that that's a lot of where the, the inspiration for the company came from was like, I was someone who used to overtrain. And so I figured, like, why am I not getting fitter as an athlete if I keep putting in the work every day, if I keep like giving it my all every day? I was like, oh, because I don't sleep. Like, I'm not recovering. My body's not like repairing. And as a young college kid, that wasn't obvious to me until I did this enormous amount of physiology research and realized that maybe the secret to being a high performance athlete is actually the other 20 hours of the day. Like, how are you treating your body when you're not training? Like, what are all those variables? And that's a lot of where this idea of balancing strain and recovery came from, which you, you might have noticed in the, in the whoop interface. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I think that a big part of my success as a professional athlete is partially by luck. The fact that I don't, I, I don't like coffee. I don't like alcohol. I don't actually, I don't like uh, bubbles. Basically I don't like carbonation. So I don't like drink soda. I don't drink alcohol. So you, um, you, you consume zero, you drink zero calories pretty much. Yeah. I, I only drink water basically. Yeah. And then, you know, occasionally sports drink for very specific things or, you know, like a smoothie or something, whatever. But yeah, basically I only drink water and, and that's my choice, like by personal preference. But like some of those basic things, like always getting good night's sleep and only drinking water, obviously go a long way towards helping your recovery and helping you perform better as an athlete. But for me, that's kind of always just been the default. You know, that's like, oh, that's just the way I live. Like, that's just, that's normal. And you're like, it's funny how those kind of like soft skill things factor into athletic performance in a way that, that folks wouldn't necessarily think about. Now, do you have any other, uh, I mean, obviously you, you have a very intentional lifestyle leading up to El Cap, I, I heard that you sort of changed your sleep schedule a little bit so that you would always be waking up at exactly the same time. Is that right? Uh, not exactly, exactly the same time, but um, because I knew that I'd be starting to climb, basically I'd have to get up at like four or four thirty in the morning in order to be climbing by five or something. So I'd kind of gotten into a routine of going to bed very early and still getting a full, you know, eight hours of sleep and then getting up at four. 
Um, so it's nothing crazy because I'm sure anybody that like works nights or like works weird hours does kind of the same thing. But um, but it is counterintuitive in the springtime to go to bed at like 730. You know, it's still fully light outside and you're like, well, I'm going to bed. <laughs> you're like, well, this is where I go back to this this idea that you figure like you're 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 a masterclass in coaching as much as you are a masterclass as the athlete because you you figured these things out without anyone really telling you them or even without having worn whoop. Like one thing you'll notice pretty quickly from wearing whoop is that if you go to bed and wake up at pretty consistent times, you get this enhanced sleep quality and enhanced recovery in a pretty natural way. Uh, like your body wants to fall into a routine and you wouldn't mm -hmm. believe how many world-class professional athletes we've worked with that they wouldn't it doesn't really occur to them that oh well i've got this game at this time so i should as a result change my schedule a week earlier or even two days earlier you know like it it's it's so obvious listening to you how intentional you are and how thoughtful you are but you'd be surprised like, just don't take it for granted is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Like you, you've, you've developed uh, routines and skills that I think are more, more unique than, than you realize. That's interesting. I mean, so, so, and part of the reason I, I realized that stuff or sort of learned it is because as a climber, you frequently do, you know, what's called alpine starts, like getting up at say like 1am to go climb a mountain, like before the snow is melted or things like, like there, you're always beholden to weather conditions and, and sort of climate conditions for what you're climbing. So it's totally normal. And I've done a lot of climbing where you start at say 7 PM and you go through the night. And so I've done tons of 24 hour pushes and like, actually, uh, I, yeah. I, I did a 54 hour push in Patagonia with, you know, basically no sleep. We did 20 hour death March back to town with no food at the end of a 54 hour. It was a total disaster. Wow. But so, you know, you sort of realize that you can just push right through the night if you have to. And, you know, you can just wake up at, at three and perform at your best if you have to. But the thing is, if you want to like feel really good while you do it, then that has to be normal to you. And so, you know, like I've had enough experience like that where, where I just skip a night's sleep because I'm like climbing straight through the night. Then I'm like, yeah, it's possible. But if you want to feel really good while you do it, then that has to be like your norm. That has to be your routine. And so that was kind of the, the premise going into free soloing all caps. So I was like, if I want to wake up at four and feel like a champion when I go climbing at 430 in the morning, then I have to be doing that day in, day out. And like, you know, it has to feel normal to me. And so that's, that's what I did. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's awesome. And then from a recovery standpoint, are, are you someone who is using any products? Are you someone who uh, stretches obsessively? Are you someone who, you know, just likes to eat right after you work out? Like what are, what are some of your habits there? Um, so, I mean, I've always stretched a bit, you know, not seriously before El Cap, I was stretching a lot more because, uh, one of the most difficult moves on the climb requires a really dynamic stretch. And so, uh, you know, because it, the stretching suddenly felt much more high consequence, I was like, Oh, I, sh I should be stretching more. But, um, in general though, I'm, I'm rarely limited by flexibility. So I don't stretch that much. You know, I'm kind of like, Oh, it's enough to get by. It's fine. Um, taking athletic greens in the morning, kind of into it. Like think it's wholesome. I mean, in general, I'm all about mm -hmm. sort of like wholesome, you know, attempts at health things. Like I make smoothies for myself, which is like fruits and, you know, protein from time to time. You know, I've been vegetarian for a long time and, and try to eat well. I don't know, like, yeah, just a wholesome diet as much as possible, but I have a bit of a sweet tooth. So it's hard to, it's hard to be perfect. You know, how long uh, were you, have you been vegetarian for? Uh, I think since 2012. So like, I don't know, coming up on nine, 10 years, something like that. 
Okay, so but, it was a that, long time before you did El Cap because I was going to say that would be an interesting transition to make, kind of like in the process of gearing up for no like that. The, the pre El Cap, I went basically vegan because uh, I'm I'm like lactose intolerant for sure. Like if I drink a bunch of milk, I'll for sure have GI issues like right after. Yeah, totally. So which is totally normal, but um, but I'm not so bad that that it prevents me from eating cheese or dairy, you know, from time to time. But like pre El Cap, I went basically vegan, except I was still eating eggs. Cause I was like, Oh, obviously dairy is not good for me. There's no point in having it. Even if I don't experience GI symptoms, I just shouldn't be eating it. And it's bad for the environment whatever. Yeah. But um, yeah. So basically the whole run up to El Cap, I was like eating a vegan diet. I was exercising 40 hours a week. I was stretching compulsively. I was going to bed. I raced all my social media. I had like, I quit responding to emails. So I basically had like nothing going on uh, internet wise, distraction wise. I mean, it was, you know, it was an incredibly wholesome lifestyle for, you know, the four months. I also wound up weighing the least that I've ever weighed. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm always within a very narrow band, but when I free sold it all cap, I was like at the bottom of my band. And I was Inten- like, intentionally because you're like, I want to be as light as possible for this. Or no, I think, no, I think it just happened because when you exercise 40 hours a week and eat a vegan diet, you eventually lose some weight. You know, I was just like a couple pounds leaner than normal. You know, it, it wasn't anything crazy. But you strike uh, me as someone who, when he says like, you've gained weight, you've gained like two and a half pounds. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, that's exactly it. Yeah. But, you're, you're, you've had the same weight for a long time and it's been pretty narrow. Yeah. I mean, I'm within the same like six pound range my entire life, basically. Yeah. But um, but it's funny because when you train for climbing, like when you hangboard with weights, uh, the unit of progress is normally two and a half pounds. So you can like train for weeks and sort of suddenly, you know, your fingers are two and a half pounds stronger. I mean, that's why like strength to weight ratio is such a thing in climbing because, yeah. you know, you're like, oh, either I can train for months and gain a little bit of strength or I can lose two and a half pounds. And you're kind of like, either way, it gets you to the same place. And weight training, is that something you've introduced or you think the best way to train is to do the, the activity of climbing? Uh, I've never specifically weight trained, like lifted weights. The closest I've come to that is sort of hangboarding with weight, which is like when you hang from your fingertips with a little bit of weight. So that is the same principle as weight training, but it's it looks very different than like going to the gym and like curling or something, you know, because sure. you're, you're like dangling from a, a climbing training apparatus. But uh, no, I, I'm all about body weight exercise and, and doing the sport itself, you know, climbing a lot. Well, um, it's uh, it's amazing, man. And, and uh I, I have to just compliment you on everything you've accomplished at a, at a young age. Now, Jared Leto tells me I have to ask you what's next. What's the next adventure? Oh, it's, I mean, I don't know. I, I wonder, uh, did Jared actually ask you to, to, to say that? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if he was thinking of something specific or, uh, or well, I, you know, I, I sent him a list of, I was like, Hey, what should I ask? Uh, Alex, I got him on the podcast tomorrow and he sent me a number of things that we talked about. He said, you're a great karaoke. Uh, guy. Oh my God, dude. He's, he's really good at karaoke. Well, like, I, I, he's, I mean, like a professional know, yeah. musician, so we'll give him credit for that. Well, I know, but like someone can be a professional music, like, when we were all doing karaoke, he's like laying on his little thing. He's not really participating. Cause he's like, Oh, I don't want to play. I don't want to play. I think this is dumb. But then when he started to play, you're like, dude, he's really good. Yeah. Like, that's cool. It's uh, it's like one of those things where it's nice to see that someone who's supposed to be good at something is actually really, really good at it. You know? Yeah. So, that is, that's a good point. Like but, sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah. but I mean, what's next? Cause what's interesting to me about your El Cap accomplishment is you didn't have like there's an entrepreneur's curse that I've seen from other entrepreneurs, for example, where they'll like build this thing to be worth whatever, $10 billion, they'll make a fortune. And then they'll kind of arrive at this moment and be like, 
oh man, what, what am I going to do next? Like, what's next? Like, I got to do something next, you know? And it's almost like a letdown of the accomplishment. And I get the sense that that's not what's happened for you. You've, you've like really been grateful for it. It's a set, like, you've got a feeling of mastery that you've, you've grown from it. And in, in some ways you don't feel an urge to immediately climb the next L cap. Yes. Yeah, interesting. You ask, and, and if you'd asked me a year ago, the answer would probably be different, but so just to put it in, in perspective here. So I free sell it all cap in 2017. There was a year of post-production on the film. So the next year I basically climbed like normal. I went on climbing expeditions to like Alaska and Antarctica, climbed a sure. bunch of cool new routes, did a bunch of big climbing challenges, did the speed record on all cap in two hours and was like pretty proud of it. And then, and then the film came out and then I so did maybe, maybe that's a big deal in itself. I mean, maybe I'm not giving you enough credit for that. I mean, no, no, no. That, that's not what I mean. Is Well, it's, it's just an interesting arc because it's like, so I did this big thing that I'm proud of. I had yeah. a year of just like normal climbing. Then the film came out and I did a whole year film tour of like press and going to the Oscars and like, you know, meeting Prince William at the BAFTAs and stuff like that. You know, this whole <laughs> yeah. crazy, whole like crazy life weird, experience. Weird transition for you. Yeah. yeah. And, and at all of those events, you know, everyone's asking what's next, what's next. And you're kind of like, oh, it's weird because, you know, personally, it feels like I did this a year ago and I already did all this other cool climbing that I'm proud of since then. But people are sort of expecting this like free solo to this like crazy project that you're working on that'll be better in some way. And you're like, there just isn't really one. And then also doing the film tour, like kind of burns you out, just like traveling nonstop for sure. a year to all these crazy events. And so now it's been a year since the movie tour. I mean, basically COVID is like an obvious reset where you just focus on climbing close to home and, you know, training and like yeah. sort of keeping it more chill. And, and now I'm very much feeling a bit of a personal hunger again, where I have a handful of soloing projects. I'm working on some things that I'm excited about. I'm like working on, you know, like a VR soloing thing uh, just because I think it's cool. It's like not even, you know, it's not like it's going to the Oscars or something, but it's just going to like look amazing and, and highlight some stuff that I'm proud to climb. And like, it's fun, you know? And so I think I've kind of come full circle where I'm like back to the same process that eventually led me to El Cap, where I'm just like, well, I have a bunch of different things going on that I'm excited about, that I'm working hard for, that I'm training for. I'm kind of like, you know, we'll see which of them turn out to be really impressive or not, but it's kind of like, doesn't really matter because I just want to keep like grinding away at things that I'm proud of. And so, you know, we'll see basically. And the celebrity that's come with your success, is that is that something you enjoy or is it something you kind of feel uncomfortable with? Is it, maybe it's a great opportunity to use your platform for good? I mean, how do you think about it? Yeah, it's it's just, it is what it is. I mean, I've translated a lot of that uh, through my foundation, through the HANA Foundation, Support and Solar Projects. And I've, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, if you wind up being... It's like, if you get thrust into this position, you may as well harness it in a way that's useful for the world. You know, it's like, may as well do something useful with it. And and obviously, you know, I'm really grateful to be able to make a living through climbing. I'm like, I get to go climbing every day. It's like, I get to do the thing that I love to do. You know, that said, I'm still chatting from a, a closet underneath my staircase. You know what I mean? It's not like, it's not like my world has changed that much. Like I'm sitting in a closet, like chatting about <laughs> rock climbing. You know, it's not yeah. like, it's not like some crazy lifestyle change. Yeah. Although, I mean, I, I have to imagine going from being a, a famous or like very talented rock climber to being known as the guy who free soloed El Cap in an Oscar winning movie. Like there's a little bit of a before and after to that, right? Yeah. Yeah. There is must for have, sure. You must've felt your life change in that kind of, you know, 2016 to 2019 period. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But at least it's changed for something that I'm proud of, that I'm grateful oh, for. You know what I mean? Like it's all, yeah. it's Rock all. Rock and roll, man. Yeah. 
everything. And and honestly, you know, I chose that. Like I chose to make a movie about about free yeah, selling all cap. Right. And you know, I didn't expect it to go to the. I didn't even really expect it to go to theaters. You know, because you, you, yeah, you think right. it's going to be a climbing film. And like I've made a lot of climbing films over the years, but you know, only one of them has gone to the Oscars. And so, you know, you well, just you're don't really one know. For one too. <laughs> a lot of people go to the Oscars. They don't come home with a trophy. I know it's crazy. It's I get crazy. the sense that you would have done this if no one in the world ever found out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Actually. So, I mean, fun fact, uh, you know, I mentioned that I was just on an expedition in the jungle. It was for a TV show, like a national geographic episode of this thing. Um, while I was there, I soloed the wall that we climbed and it's the first time that, that a wall of that type has ever been soloed. And I kind of did it because I was like, I'm in this place and I have an opportunity to do something sort of historic, you know, like no thing like this has ever been soloed. Like I'm obligated to do it while I'm here, huh. but it didn't, it didn't really fit with the whole TV thing though. So nobody filmed it. It doesn't go into the show at all. There's like literally no mention of it, but at least I'm like, nobody saw it. Like nobody, there was literally no documentation of any kind. Sounds like this is the first anyone's heard of it. Uh, it may be. And actually I'm like, I hope that's not a problem, but I'm sure it's fine. (laughs) Um, but, uh, no, no, I'm sure it's fine, but it is one of those things that I was like, I did it for me. I did it because it's important for, I hate to say climbing history, but you know, it is cool to just do something new in climbing to feel like you've at least broadened the sport in a way that, that matters, you know? And I'm kind of like, if I have the opportunity, I'm obligated to do something that, that I'm capable of like that. Oh, you're the best spokesperson there can be. Now it sounds like you've got a new podcast that's geared towards that as well. Talk a little bit about that. So Climbing Gold is coming out this week and you can find it anywhere you get your podcast, Spotify, wherever else. It was supposed to be a lead up to the Olympics, but then the Olympics got pushed because of COVID. But basically we looked at, we have been looking at where climbing has come from and where it's going. Because climbing is just at such an interesting time right now. I mean, all of our chat about Free Solo sort of demonstrates that, you know, it's like it's climbing is just so much more in the public consciousness and so much more popular than it was, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so climbing is having a real moment and my my co-host Fitzcahal and I felt like it's important to share a little bit, to share some of the timeless stories of where climbing has come from and to use those to highlight where it's going and like what's happening with the sport right now. So anyway, it's it's been kind of a passion project through COVID. It's it's really sort of a an opportunity to to interview all my heroes, you know, because <laughs> it's fun to chat with folks who you've looked up to your entire life. But, now you're you're recently married, not that long ago, right? Yeah, uh, September. Congratulations. And how has that changed at all the way you think about that risk uh, consequence equation? Uh, Not yet, but I wouldn't, I mean, we plan on having a family someday and I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, if I have kids, I think about risk a little bit differently and I feel more beholden to my family maybe. But so far, uh, but, but really the reality is that I'm always trying to be careful, you know, like I don't want to die either. So whether I'm doing it for loved ones or doing it for myself, like I'm always being as careful as I can. I imagine you are. It's just an interesting, because some of your decision-making obviously comes from what other people think. And if your wife is nervous about something that may actually affect your performance in doing it. Right. Totally. Totally. But like some of that though is, is what is considered socially acceptable risk. Cause like if you marry a race car driver, you're like, Oh, you know, he's a race car driver. That's kind of fringe. It's a little bit weird, but it's kind of normal in a way. Yeah. You know, whereas like marrying a rock climber, marrying a free soloist, whatever that means, you're like, that seems crazy. Like that's really dangerous. But you're like, I wouldn't be surprised if the numbers are actually less dangerous than race car driving or whatever else, you know, like being a fighter pilot or something you know, certainly being a test pilot. I mean, geez, you know, I mean, there are plenty of very dangerous professions out there that 
are considered slightly more acceptable, slightly more mainstream, or like being a commercial fisherman is supposed to be one of the more dangerous professions by the numbers. It's, it's, I don't know. I, I love the the amount of logic though that you've applied to all of this. And it, but I justification. Think, well, I don't know. I think it's. I think it's. I I think that you. I think that people perceive you as sort of like I don't want to say like risk seeker, but but like I I, I get the sense that you're more you're much more calculated and intentional than than the sort of quick mainstream point of view might be. Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. But that's because most people get an opinion from like a single YouTube video where they're like, that guy's insane. And you're kind of like, come on, I've been working at this for 25 years and I devote you know almost everything I do to this one activity. It's not like I'm just walking up and climbing the rock. You know, it's like, come on. I feel like sometimes people undervalue expertise. You know, it's like literally all of my friends and everything I talk about is focused on this one activity. It's like, Come on, I got to be pretty good at it by now, you know. Totally, and I'm 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 on your team on this one. Obviously, I'm a believer based on on everything that we've talked about and everything you've done. Although, you know, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like in 2000, what 14 or 15, even like I, I think like sponsors were pulling back on free soloing because like certain, you know, unfortunately there had been some accidents and and so actually they they weren't soloing accidents, so it's mostly bass jumping accidents, things like that. But okay, so and actually, with those, so I mean, you're mentioning Cliff Bar pulled support for a bunch of its athletes who it felt were engaging in too high risk of activities. And then, sort of sadly, two years later, like Dean Potter, one of those athletes died in a base jumping accident, okay, suiting accident. Go. And so, but base jumping and what you do is very different, right? Yeah, super different. Yeah. And, and it's funny because people sort of conflate them as like, oh, it's all dangerous extreme sports. But what I like to say is that with free soloing, it's all going to be okay unless the worst case scenario happens. Like basically, unless something terrible happens, you're going to be fine. Like if you just don't move and you just freeze and you hold onto the rock, like you're still alive right up until something terrible happens. With a sport like base jumping, like you're going to die unless everything works perfectly, you know, because you jump off a cliff. So it's like you're about to die unless it all works out and the parachute deploys. So it's like basically you're flipping the odds the opposite way. You know, you're going from like everything will be okay unless the bad case scenario happens to, to the opposite of that, which is like, you're for sure going to die unless the best case scenario happens. And I'm kind of like, that's a terrible way to, to like, that's a terrible sport. And that's why I don't base jump. You don't strike me as someone who's taking a lot of risk on in other aspects of your life. Is that fair? Yeah. I, I hate rolling the dice. I, like I've never gambled. I think the lottery is totally stupid. Like th- things like that. I just, you know, I don't want to take chances for no reason, basically. I think, I think, See, it's I think that, I think that defends our point of view here. Alex in a in a positive way because the again if the stereotype were risk seeker you know you'd be someone who likes to gamble you'd be like doing other kind of crazier sports and things like you found a, a lane that you have mastered and that's like in your complete control in, in a way try try to anyway yeah fun fun fact a, a while back I went uh, go-karting with some friends. And I kind of, I wanted to think of myself as kind of badass, you know, like race car driver. <laughs> but I, I was actually just not good at all. Cause I was driving pretty slowly. Cause I was like, boy, this feels really fast. And I don't want to like flip my go-kart and hurt myself. And I was all like, and then it turned out, I just like was not that great of a driver for, for go-karting. And I was sort of like, Oh, it turns out that like free soloing big walls doesn't really make you any better at like other extreme sports, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, geez. Amazing. But, yeah. So, uh, so where can, um, can people find you if they want to, uh, learn more about you? I mean, obviously there's the podcast coming out. That's going to be wherever you can find podcasts. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be on Spotify, anywhere you can find podcasts, uh, find Climbing Gold. You can listen to to me uh, chatting with all kinds of climbing heroes. Uh, I mean, you can find me online wherever. If you're really curious about things that that I care about, go to hanafoundation.org because the work that I'm doing through my foundation, I think, is more interesting than my climbing in some ways, or certainly more useful in the world. But so, so make you know. a plug for that, and if someone wants to donate, you know, what, what what's it going towards? Uh, yeah, so the Hano Foundation supports solar energy for a more equitable world. So basically, solar projects around the world that improve standard of living for folks. And it's kind of an outgrowth of the climbing that I've done and the expeditions that I've been on around the world. And and basically, just a feeling that you know I was making more than I needed and and ought to be doing something useful. And uh, and that all just wound up supporting energy access projects. But um, but yeah, the Hano Foundation has been doing great things the last couple of years, and I'm I'm pretty psyched on it. So um, if anybody's interested, you know, HanoFoundation.org. Awesome, man. Well, I'm I'm stoked to have you on Whoop. I think it's very cool that you get so much REM sleep and very on brand for you. And I'm excited to, to kind of learn more about your Whoop experience as you wear it for longer. But oh, are you wearing it on your wrist or do you wear it on your upper arm? Uh, my wrist, though I, I haven't tried the upper arm, and I'm I'm open to whichever. But so far, the wrist seems fine, even for climbing. And you think so. it'll be fine for climbing too? So far, it has been, but um. It's like getting a little scratched on the sides and stuff from going into cracks, obviously, but it actually hasn't impaired the climbing yet. So uh, until it does, I think I'm just going to leave it on the wrist. And, and You could know. also wear like a sweatband or something if that doesn't bother you. Like things like that will protect it too. I, oh, no, I, I, I like the low prop. I don't mind it. I mean, okay, it doesn't. Good. It doesn't get damaged getting scratched like that, does it? I assume it's just the clasp that's getting scratched up. But. Yeah, you can you can go pretty hard at it. I mean, the the same products being worn by players in the NFL and Navy SEALs and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's it's been pretty pretty battle tested. Yeah, no, I'm I'm uh, pleasantly surprised by it so far. I mean, it's like it uh, just in terms of being able to wear it during activity. I think it's it's much better than I expected. I gotta let it do the full thirty day calibration and then see what I get from it and and i'm I'm really curious at what point or if it will start changing the way I train or changing the way I think about training because like I said, I've been doing yeah uh, you know my own recording for a very long time, so I have a pretty good sense of what I think I should be doing, but I'm curious because at some point I'm sure I'll be learning from it in a way that I wouldn't otherwise, and I don't know I'm excited to see what happens awesome well yeah. as you have questions about it, feel free to ping me anytime and yeah. uh you know look forward to meeting you in, in a post covid post covid world. Uh, dude, a real pleasure chatting and uh, and yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you to Alex for coming on the podcast. Thank you to Jared Lato and others who submitted questions. Uh, a reminder, you can check out his podcast, Climbing Gold, uh, which is a detailed look at the history of rock climbing. Whoops, honored to be the title sponsor of that podcast. So check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Also a reminder, you can get 15% off a WHOOP membership with the code Will Ahmed. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. Uh, and then check us out on social at WHOOP, at Will Ahmed. Uh, and that's it, folks. Stay in the green. We'll be back next week.